0: Hello again, fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Well, looks like we're about a month deep into the great quarantine of 2020. How are you guys holding up out there? Hopefully you're all keeping it together. I'm trying my best to stay in one piece. I imagine a lot of you are knee deep in some home projects, reading books, putting your brain to good use. I hope you're listening to today's episode and you're organizing that closet you've neglected for too long, or painting your bedroom a new color, or relaxing in your favorite chair, maybe engaging in some deep breathing exercises. This is the 20th episode of PCPC, and for today's episode we're going to be taking a look at British Airways Flight 5390, a scheduled flight from Birmingham Airport in England to Malaga, Spain on the morning of June 10th, 1990. I'm very pleased to say that we have a number of new Patreon members out there. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate your support and aid in keeping this show up and running. If you haven't yet, please check out patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. You can support PCPC for as little as one American dollar a month. One crisp greenback that will help us keep the lights on here at PCPC headquarters. For those of you that have ordered merch or are due to receive an item from your Patreon membership, Our merch company is experiencing some delays due to COVID-19, so please know that we haven't forgotten about you, and we'll be getting you your goods as soon as possible. Thanks for your understanding. On the podcast today, we are joined by a familiar guest, arguably a co-host at this point, a steady presence in a world of chaos, Ms. Tess Andrade. Say hello to your fellow humans, Tess.
1: Hello, fellow humans.
0: So, Tess, how's your mental health doing these days? Are you keeping it together? Any tips you can give the rest of us?
1: Doing okay, yeah. I think I'm I'm trying to keep a positive mindset. I think exercise has helped me a lot. I've mm-hmm. been taking a lot of those live stream exercise classes, nice. which are pretty fun.
0: Nice. I've been watching a documentary on the Roosevelt family right now. Teddy Roosevelt, the 26th president of the United States, had this mantra, get action. And I've been using that as inspiration lately. Get action basically means find something to do, build something, read a book, clean out the garage, reject a life of idleness. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I like to make lists at the top of every morning, and that kind of keeps me on track and keeps me feeling like I have a schedule.
0: Yeah, that you adhere to, and you can look at it at the end of the day and be like, I got all these things done.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Tess, do you miss flying? I know you miss your family and all, but is it harder living life not having a vacation or a trip on the horizon?
1: You know, that's a good point. I feel like my entire life I have usually had a trip on the horizon to look forward to, and I've been very lucky in that way. But I'm just kind of trying to take each day as it comes and um, try and focus on the present and yeah. not fixate too much on the future.
0: That's a smart way of dealing with that question, I think. I personally miss flying. I miss having a fun travel event on my calendar. I always feel like if you have a vacation planned in the distance, it makes you work harder in the present. You're like, I can work hard now because I have this you know, ray of light at the end of the tunnel. But I'm looking forward to a time that we can all plan vacations again. I feel like... We'll get there. We just need to get through this moment and probably focus on today, as you suggested.
1: Yeah, and when this is all over, we'll uh, take a nice little trip to Aruba.
0: Well, Tess, as I'm sure you know and everyone else is aware, the number of passengers flying has greatly dropped off due to the coronavirus outbreak. TSA in the U.S. just announced yesterday that only 90,000 people went through airport security across the nation on Easter Sunday 2020. On the same day last year, 2.4 million people flew on Easter Sunday. That's a 96% drop-off between 2019 and 2020. Due to the lack of demand, American Airlines has offered its pilots early retirement or paid voluntary leave. An average American Airlines pilot gets paid for about 90 hours of work per month, plus benefits. With the early retirement and voluntary leave now offered, pilots can stay home and get a check for 50 to 55 hours per month, plus they still get to keep all their benefits. Around 5,500 American Airlines pilots have already signed on for early retirement or voluntary leave. Thousands of flight attendants have already accepted similar offers as well. So great changes are upon the airline industry, given the fact that we're all going to be staying home for the foreseeable future. What kind of lasting effect do you expect this pandemic to have on the psyche of the average passenger, Do you think a year or two from now, things will be just back to normal and the demand for travel will be high again? Or do you expect people to be less inclined to travel in the future? Do you see yourself as someone that's eager to resume your travel habits?
1: Well, Michael, I think that life will return to normal to some degree. I Mm -hmm. think people will get back into traveling. People love traveling. So they'll continue to do that even after all of this. But I do think that the bigger shift is gonna be in how people approach traveling, how they think about it, the precautions they take. This has changed me for sure. I was never someone that was germ conscious and I'm really gonna approach day-to-day life differently.
0: Yeah, no, I think you nailed the same points I was going to make. I think it's in our DNA as human beings to be explorers. So I think once we have a vaccine, experts say it's safe, and this cloud of uncertainty is lifted, humanity will be flocking back to airports to travel the world and take selfies next to the Acropolis once again. So I don't think the fire in the hearts of human beings to travel and see the world will be permanently extinguished. I think you nailed it, though. I do think how we travel will be forever changed. Maybe that just means having a package of antibacterial wipes on hand to wipe down your airport seat or your train seat if you're on a train. Maybe it'll become commonplace for Americans and Europeans, Australians, and New Zealanders to embrace the wearing of masks while traveling abroad. You know, I feel like for a while we've seen people wear masks and we're like, oh, they must be OCD or must be overly cautious. Well, now that's going to be pretty normal. We're going to be like, oh, that person's pretty smart. If you were working as a flight attendant right now or a pilot, and you were offered this package where you could make a fraction of the money, half the money you typically do, you get all your benefits and you don't have to work anymore. Would you take that? Would that interest you?
1: Honestly, Michael, I think I would take that package just because I'm not really someone that wants to take risks right now at this particular moment in history. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do admire um, and have so much respect for people that are on the front lines risking their lives right now.
0: Yeah, I think it be, would be really tough if you really enjoyed being a flight attendant or enjoyed being a pilot. We all plan for our lives, you know. These guys envision having this job and doing this job they love for years to come. And to have the world event kind of uh, affect your planning and be like, oh suddenly I can't be a pilot anymore. I enjoy flying planes full of people and I was planning on doing that with the next five years of my life, but I'm kind of almost forced into retirement. I think the humanity of that situation of all these people having to make this choice and give up this thing they love doing And being forced into, or not really forced, but having a new early retirement. Nudged into it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little upsetting. I wish those people could have got what they wanted out of life.
1: Yeah. And I I mean, also, I think that quarantine for months on end wasn't really in anyone's five-year plan. So we're all having to make adjustments. Totally. Yeah.
0: Well, hopefully a lot of those pilots and flight attendants that are on voluntary leave will be hardworking again, high in the skies in the months and years ahead. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you haven't signed up yet, you get 10% off your first month with the link betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. It's perfect for this moment in time when we're all cooped up at home. If you need an objective, intelligent, qualified therapist to check in on you and make sure you're practicing healthy mental habits, BetterHelp can help you. You can message your therapist 24 hours a day through text and you can engage in online video sessions once a week. It's cheaper than traditional therapy and you get to create your own hours, work outside the normal nine to five of typical therapists. To learn more and get the 10% discount, go to betterhelp.com forward slash pod. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod.
1: Thank you, Michael. And I have to say, I have talked to a counselor over video chat every mm-hmm. week and it's really helped me keep a level head.
0: That's good. Yeah. It's good to talk to people during these times. As a lot of you know by now, this podcast was born out of an attempt to confront anxiety surrounding flying. We reasoned that if we learn more about crashes from the past and exposed ourselves to this thing that we were fearful of, it might tamp down some of the worries we experience when flying. So far it seems to be working. We are aware that the tragedies we discuss concern real people with family and friends and neighbors. We never want to come across as insensitive or disrespectful to anyone. The air travel system today is very safe, and one of the main reasons that it is safe is because of all the hard lessons learned from crashes of the past. With each accident, safety recommendations are made, designs are refined, and the overall safety of air travel is improved.
1: You ready to get started, Tess? Ready for takeoff, sir.
0: British Airways Flight 5390 was a scheduled flight from Birmingham Airport in England to Malaga Airport in Spain early in the morning on Sunday, June 10, 1990. The plane was a BAC, British Aircraft Corporation, One Eleven Five Hundred series. The BAC-111 was a short-range jet airliner that was first introduced to the commercial market in 1965. During the plane's development in late October 1963 a prototype crash during stall testing. As a result of this investigation into the prototype crash, BAC developed new devices, seen as revolutionary at the time called stick shakers and stick pushers. These stick shakers and pushers, which aid pilots by the warning of and prevention of a stall, were added to the BAC-111's control systems. These were seen as cutting-edge innovations in airplane design in the early 60s. BAC-111s were initially manufactured on a production line near Bournemouth Airport in England. The first BAC-111 was delivered to British United Airways in January 1965. It was a BAC-111 200 series with a passenger capacity of 89. The BAC-111 500 series aircraft was introduced in 1967. With the 500 series, passenger capacity was increased from 89 to 119. The 500 series aircraft was 13 and a half feet longer than the 200 series, and the wingspan was increased by five feet. The BAC 111 had two rear mounted engines located on each side of the rear fuselage and a T tail, where the horizontal stabilizer is located at the top of the fin at the back of the plane, also known as the vertical stabilizer. So the BAC 111 has a T tail similar to the DC 9 from Air Canada Flight 797 the tuple 2-154 from the Überlingen mid-air collision. The BAC-111 used for Flight 5390 was manufactured in 1977 and had 37,724 flight hours. The plane was part of the British Caledonian fleet prior to the British Airways takeover in December 1987. The captain of Flight 5390 was Captain Tim Lancaster. Captain Lancaster was 42 years old at the time of the incident. He was based out of East Haney, Oxfordshire, in Southeast England. Captain Lancaster had 11,050 flight hours, 1,075 hours flying BAC-111s. The first officer of Flight 5390 was First Officer Alistair Atchison. First Officer Atchison was 39 years old in June 1990. He had 7,500 flight hours, 1,100 hours flying BAC-111s. There were four flight attendants. 36-year-old Nigel Ogden, 33-year-old Sue Prince, 37-year-old Purser or Chief Flight Attendant John Heward, and 29-year-old Simon Rogers. Flight 5390 had 81 passengers with a total crew of six for 87 human beings on board. Captain Tim Lancaster and the four flight attendants had flown with one another off and on over the years, so they were pretty familiar with each other. First Officer Atchison was new to the crew. None of them had met him before, so he introduces himself to the flight crew at the operations office when he arrives around 6.30 a.m. Captain Lancaster and his first officer then went over the pre-flight paperwork for Flight 5390. Due to heavy air traffic in the skies above England in early June, when many passengers were looking to go on a summer vacation, the flight was delayed about an hour. Originally, the flight was scheduled for a 7.30 a.m. departure, But the earliest takeoff time Flight 5390 could secure was 8.20 a.m., almost an hour past their scheduled takeoff. The weather that morning was good. The temperature was 59 degrees Fahrenheit, scattered clouds between 12 and 15,000 feet, light wind from the north. It was decided that the first officer, Atchison, would be flying the plane that Sunday morning. As the pilots were in the cockpit doing their pre-flight check, Captain Tim Lancaster gets on the plane's PA and welcomes the passengers on board. He says to the cabin, you'll be pleased to know the weather is sunny and dry in Malaga, and we should be on our way shortly. The time is now just after 8 a.m., and both engines on the BAC 111 500 series are fired up. Our plane pushes off and taxis towards runway 33 at Birmingham Airport. A few minutes later, at 8.20 a.m., British Airways Flight 5390 blasts down runway 33 at Birmingham Airport and lifts off the ground en route to Malaga, Spain. Shortly after taking off, Flight 5390 turns to the south. The flight plan called for taking airway W5 south, heading over southern England and the Isle of Wight, crossing over the English Channel and then above France before crossing over into Spain. After takeoff checks take place and are completed, two minutes after takeoff, the autopilot is activated. The Bristol Sector Controller of London Air Traffic Control Center clears Flight 5390 to climb to 14,000 feet. In the passenger cabin, the four flight attendants are preparing to serve passengers a meal. In accordance with British Airways operating procedures, control of the aircraft was transferred to Captain Lancaster after First Officer Atchison handled takeoff in the initial climb. Air Traffic Control gives Flight 5390 a few heading changes which Captain Lancaster changes the autopilot heading control to adhere to. Air traffic control instructs the pilots to maintain a heading of 195 degrees and climb to flight level 230. The airspeed of the plane is increased to 300 knots. Captain Lancaster and First Officer Atchison point out various English towns below them. Captain Lancaster notices his village of East Haney and comments, I live just over there. Time is now 8.30 a.m., Ten minutes after takeoff, both Captain Lancaster and First Officer Atchison release their shoulder harnesses to get comfortable after takeoff. The captain also loosens his lap belt to settle in for what everyone expects will be a nice and uneventful two-hour flight to southern Spain. Flight attendant Nigel Ogden enters the cockpit and asks the two pilots if they would like some tea. Both pilots answer in the affirmative, and Ogden starts to exit the cockpit to get his captain and first officer some morning tea. At 8.30 a.m. on June 10, 1990, 13 minutes after takeoff, as flight 5390 passes through 17,300 feet, Captain Lancaster is calmly staring out the cockpit window right in front of him, waiting for his tea, when a massive bang fills the cockpit. Captain Lancaster watches as the windshield in front of him shoots outward and away from him with the speed of a bullet. An explosive decompression has occurred in the cockpit. Instantaneously, the cockpit is filled with fog due to all the moisture in the air rapidly condensing. In only one and a quarter seconds, all the air inside the pressurized cabin of flight 5390 races forward into the cockpit to try and escape out into the atmosphere via this newly formed hole in the cockpit where the captain's windscreen used to reside. This rush of air creates a tremendous howling sound, and an enormous suction-like force is suddenly unleashed. Captain Lancaster is pulled up and out of his seat. His head is slammed against the roof of the cockpit, and then his head, arms, and torso are sucked out of the cockpit window. His shirt is sucked right off of his body. Captain Lancaster's feet get entangled in his control column, saving him from being sucked out of the plane entirely. But this pressure on the control column disengages the autopilot and sends Flight 5390 into a six-degree dive. The wings of the aircraft are banking 25 degrees to the right. Keep in mind, all this is happening in just a few seconds. As Captain Lancaster is being sucked out of the window, a second bang occurs. The cockpit door is ripped from its hinges and slams into the radio navigation console, jamming the throttles in a forward position, pushing the plane's speed to 400 miles per hour and preventing First Officer Atchison from being able to access the throttles. Flight attendant Nigel Ogden, that was just exiting the cockpit to get the pilot's tea, hears this massive bang and storms into the cockpit. Ogden jumps over the captain's seat and control column and grabs Captain Lancaster by the waist before he's completely sucked out of the plane. Pens, flight charts, papers, headsets, anything that wasn't tied down in the plane is now an airborne missile headed towards the front hole in the plane. Flight 5390 is now in a dive above London, blasting through some of the busiest airspace in the world, and a mid-air collision is a serious threat. First Officer Atchison radios over. Mayday, mayday, London, this is Speedbird 5390, mayday, mayday, mayday. London Air Traffic Control replies, "Air, Speedbird 5390, London Control 132.8, mayday acknowledge. The roar of the wind escaping the plane is too loud, and 1st Officer Atchison can't hear, and thus doesn't acknowledge air traffic control. 1st Officer Atchison radios over again, Speedbird 5390, Mayday, 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 emergency depressurization on a radar heading of 195, descending to flight level 100. Again, air traffic control tries to communicate with flight 5390, but it's too loud in the cockpit, and the sound of the wind drowns out their communication. Captain Lancaster's body is mostly outside of the aircraft. It's negative 17 degrees Celsius or around 1 degree Fahrenheit. The plane is blasting upwards of 400 miles per hour and his head, arms, and torso are being slammed repeatedly against the outside of the fuselage. Blood is splattered across the side windows of the cockpit that are still in their frame. Head flight attendant John Heward rushes into the cockpit and stomps on the cockpit door breaking it into four pieces and freeing the throttles for First Officer Atchison to access. Heward takes the four or five pieces of what used to be the cockpit door and throws them in the front lavatory. Flight Attendant Ogden still has his arms around Captain Lancaster's waist, but he starts to be sucked out of the cockpit window as well. Flight Attendant Heward sees this, so he slips his arm through the shoulder harness on the jump seat behind the captain's seat, and he grabs a hold of Flight Attendant Ogden's belt and his trousers. So at this moment, a minute or so after the explosive decompression, the captain's almost completely out of the plane except for his legs. Flight attendant Ogden standing at the window, hugging the captain's waist, and flight attendant Heward is holding onto Ogden's pants belt with one hand and a jump seat seat belt with his other hand. Heward then takes the seat belt on the captain's seat and wraps it around Ogden. At 8.34 a.m., 1st Officer Atchison radios over to air traffic control Speedbird 5390 is maintaining 110. In less than two minutes, flight 5390 has plummeted from 17,300 feet to 11,000 feet. But First Officer Atchison has regained control of the aircraft and re-engaged the autopilot. In the passenger cabin, flight attendants Simon Rogers and Sue Prince are reassuring passengers, making sure everyone has their seatbelts on, tying down any loose items, and maintaining their emergency positions. Now at 11,000 feet, the pressure is equalized, but there's still an open window in the cockpit. Now a bitter cold wind is blowing into the cockpit, still blowing any loose papers all around and creating noise, which makes it difficult for First Officer Atchison to communicate with air traffic control. The cold air is also blasting the exposed skin of Flight Attendant Ogden's arms. He's trying to hold on to Captain Lancaster with all his might, even trying to pull him back inside the cockpit, But Captain Lancaster is caught in the slipstream, and it's impossible to pull him back inside. Even when both Heward and Ogden try together, they can't get the captain inside the cockpit. Flight attendant Ogden's also suffering a frostbite on his arms due to exposure to the extreme cold. From 8.34 a.m. to 8.39 a.m., London Air Traffic Control attempts to contact Flight 5390 nine times. But it's too loud in the cockpit due to the wind, and First Officer Atchison can't hear any of these attempts. Finally, at 8.39 a.m., the noise in the cockpit has died down enough for communications to resume. First Officer Atchison radios, London, this is Speedbird 5390. This is uh, Speedbird 5390. London Air Traffic Control answers, Speedbird 5390, London Control, 132.8. I hear you, Strength 5, sir. Go ahead now. First Officer Atchison responds, Roger, sir, we've had an emergency depressurization and are requesting radar assistance, please, for the nearest airfield. London Air Traffic Control Radio is back. Eh, Speedbird 5390, Roger, can you accept landing at Southampton? First Officer Atchison answers, Speedbird 5390, I'm familiar with Gatwick, would appreciate Gatwick. So the First Officer finally establishes communication with Air Traffic Control, tells them about the emergency asks for help getting to the nearest airport. London Air Traffic Control wants to direct them to Southampton, but the first officer is very familiar with Gatwick and asks initially if he can go there. Next, London Air Traffic Control radios. Speedbird 5390, Roger, if you make a left turn now, sir, direct to Mayfield. Mayfield is the radio beacon close to Gatwick. The first officer responds, 5390, if you can, uh, direct me into Southampton. Affirmative. London Air Traffic Control says, Okay, sir, would you prefer Southampton or Gatwick? There's a small pause, and London Air Traffic Control continues, Speedbird 5390, confirm you wish to route now to Southampton. First Officer Atchison answers, Speedbird 5390, I'm maintaining 110, I'm at uh, 150 knots, requesting radar assistance into Southampton. So the First Officer gives up on his idea of landing at Gatwick the airport that he knows really well, and he's decided to land at Southampton because it's closer to him. Air traffic control gives flight 5390 clearance to descend to flight level 70. Meanwhile, in the cockpit, flight attendant Nigel Ogden has completely exhausted himself holding onto Captain Lancaster with every ounce of strength in his being. The force pulling Captain Lancaster out the window is so great that Ogden's shoulder is dislocated. Ogden's arms are completely numb from being exposed to the extreme cold. The speed of the plane is slowed to 160 knots, or about 185 miles an hour. As the plane slows, Captain Lancaster's body shifts outside the plane. At first, the upper half of his body was being blown directly over the top of the cockpit. His arms stretched upwards like he was on a plummeting roller coaster. Now as the plane slows, he's fallen down to the side of the cockpit, bent out the window still, forced against the side of the plane. The flight attendants can see his head and arms now at the cockpit side window. Ogden sees that the captain's bleeding out of his nose and head. Blood is spraying the side of the cockpit window. His arms are flailing like streamers in the wind, and his eyes are wide open. He's not blinking at all. A third flight attendant, Simon Rogers, enters the cockpit and grabs Captain Lancaster's legs. He untangles one of the captain's legs that was stuck in the control column and then positions both of Captain Lancaster's feet over the captain's seat. Simon Rogers straps into a jump seat in the cockpit and holds Captain Lancaster's ankles with all his might, which allows a completely spent Nigel Ogden to finally be able to let go. Before he leaves the cockpit, there's a brief discussion on whether they should let Captain Lancaster's body go. Captain Lancaster appears to be dead to all three flight attendants and the first officer. His eyes are wide open. He's bleeding out his head, and he's not blinking at all. He seems lifeless. Nigel Ogden says, "I'll never do that." To the suggestion, first officer Atchison is in the middle of radioing air traffic control when he hears this discussion, and he says to his flight attendants, "No, if you could hold on, if you could hold on to him." In addition to wanting to be respectful of Captain Lancaster's body. The flight crew's worried that letting him go would be a risk to the plane's functionality, that he might get sucked into the engines or slam into the horizontal stabilizer. When the explosion first occurred, the first officer didn't know the extent of the damage to the plane. By this point, the plane's operating normally outside of an open window in the cockpit. He's probably doing the math on the situation, considers it not worth the risk of damaging the engines or plane and causing another serious problem. Flight attendant Ogden finally leaves the cockpit with an injured arm from having wedged it against the window frame and a dislocated shoulder. Flight attendant Simon Rogers is holding the captain's ankles. Ogden collapses in a jump seat in the passenger cabin for a few minutes. Ogden puts his head in his hands when his fellow flight attendant, Sue Prince, comes up to him. Ogden hugs her and whispers in her ear, I think the captain's dead. Sue Prince responds to him, come on, love, we got a job to do. The two flight attendants walk the passenger cabin, making sure passengers have their seatbelts on, reassuring those that are panicking, telling everyone to remain calm. In the cockpit, the first officer is given a new frequency by London Air Traffic Control, who is attempting to transfer Flight 5390 to Southampton Sector Control. But in the stress of the moment, First Officer Acheson doesn't switch frequencies, and he keeps radioing London. Air Traffic Controller at London, realizing the hectic situation that this first officer's in, says Speedbird five three nine zero, Roger, remain on this frequency, sir, and I will give you radar vectors into Southampton. So the London controller is saying to himself, This guy's in an emergency. He keeps talking to me when I just gave him a new frequency. Instead of passing the buck, I can help him out so I don't so he doesn't have to switch frequencies. One less issue that this guy's got to deal with. First Officer Atchison gets on the plane's PA and tells passengers that the cockpit windshield had blown out, but the plane was now under control and that they would be landing shortly. The First Officer also told passengers to closely follow all instructions from flight attendants. At 8.43 a.m., now 10 minutes post-explosion, London Air Traffic Control radios over to Flight 5390. Continue descent down to 4,000 feet, please. Flight 5390 is now at 7,000 feet and starts descending towards flight level 40. As the plane is getting close to Southampton Airport, London Air Traffic Control radios over the Southampton Approach control frequency. First Officer Adjason radios over to the new frequency. Southampton, this is Speedbird 5390. Do you read? Southampton Approach responds... Speedbird5390, good morning. Identified on Handover, London radar, six miles to the west of Southampton Field. What is your passing level? First Officer Atchison responds Roger, sir. Presently leaving flight level 64. Could you confirm your QH, please? When he's asking for QH, he's asking for the airport sea level pressure. Southampton Control Radio is back Roger, my QNH 1019 millibars. The runway in use is runway 02. The wind is 350 degrees at 12 knots. First Officer Atchison responds, Roger, sir, I'm not familiar with Southampton. I request you shepherd me onto the runway, please. Now, generally, when you're in an emergency situation in the sky like this, you have one pilot flying the plane and one or more pilots, flight engineers to help out by consulting flight manuals or checklists or charts. Usually another set of eyes and ears are there to pick up on any mistakes and double check things to make sure nothing's being overlooked or incorrectly executed. Well, on Flight 5390, First Officer Atchison is flying the plane. His co-pilots half-sucked out the window and incapacitated. There isn't a flight engineer. Because of this open window, all the charts, manuals, paperwork that might have been helpful has been flown out of the plane. First Officer Atchison now has to rely totally on his memory and trust his training and flying ability during this very stressful situation to get this plane on the ground. At 8:45 a.m., Southampton Approach Control radios over, inquiring about the nature of the emergency. 5390. We've been advised it's a pressurization failure. Is that the only problem? First Officer Atchison responds, er, "Negative, sir. The uh, captain is half sucked out of the aeroplane. I understand. I believe he is dead." Approach Control says, "Roger. That is copied." First Officer Atchison continues. Flight attendants holding on to him, but uh, requesting emergency facilities for the captain. I, I, I think he's dead. Approach control responds. Roger, that is copied. Continued descent then at 2,000 feet. QNH 1019er. Make it a nice gentle turn at the moment. You're seven miles southwest of the airfield. It's 846 a.m. and flight 5390 is passing through 5,500 feet. First Officer Atchison and Air Traffic Control then have a discussion about the length of the airfield at Southampton. First Officer Atchison wants a long runway and says that there's one at least 2,500 meters long, I am happy. Southampton Control tells him that the longest runway they have is 1,800 meters long, and First Officer Atchison tells him that it's acceptable to him. At 8.48 a.m., First Officer Atchison asks, do you have an ILS, instrument landing system frequency? The first officer is hoping he'll get both a center line and a glide path guidance to the runway. Southampton Approach radios back, negative, I have a VOR, but it'll be radar vectors on the visual final. First Officer Atchison replies, 5390, thank you very much. We are three greens, flaps 45, so I'm set up for an approach, but make it please very gentle. Approach responds, yes, I will do, indeed, you're number one in traffic. Captain Lancaster is still hanging out the window, and Flight Attendant Simon Rogers is holding on with all his might to the captain's ankles. At 8.50 a.m., Approach Control Radios. Speedbird 5390 is 9 miles from touchdown. You are clear to land. The wind indicates 020 degrees, 14 knots. Descend to height 1500 feet on the QFE 1017. First Officer Atchison responds... Roger, sir, descending to 1,500 feet. Talk me all the way down. I need all the help I can get. It's a bit hazy out, so 1st Officer Atchison can't see the runway yet. For the next five minutes, the Approach Control Operator at Southampton gives his full attention to Flight 5390, providing updates every 30 seconds. Approach says, You'll be able to stop on the runway to evacuate the aircraft on the runway. You are number one. You are clear to land. Then Approach adds, your range now is seven miles from touchdown. You are on the extended center line. Your range is at six and a half miles. You are clear to land. You are on the final approach track. 5390, turn left five degrees. You are five miles from touchdown. Continue your descent at the recommended rate for a three-degree glide path. Controller is doing a great job, just calming the first officer down, giving him a confident voice in his ear to guide him to the airport. At 8.53 a.m., approach radios, you are lined up, you are cleared to land. First Officer Atchison responds, 5390, thank you, I have the airport in sight. At 8.55 a.m., British Airways Flight 5390 lands safely on Runway 02 at Southampton Airport. Approach radios over, Speedbird 5390, fantastic approach, you may shut down on the runway and leave the frequency. First Officer Atchison responds, 5390, thank you. That's the end of the air traffic control communications. Relieved passengers exited the front and rear of the plane via the air stairs. A fire truck was on the scene immediately and backed up to the nose of the plane to assist with getting Captain Lancaster's body back into the cockpit. Shockingly, as he was being pulled back into the cockpit, Captain Lancaster regained consciousness a bit and asked, how high are we? A fireman responded, about four feet, six inches, mate, but don't worry about it. Captain Lancaster was rushed to Southampton General Hospital, where he was found to suffer from a broken arm, broken wrist, broken thumb, extensive bruising, frostbite, and shock. Flight Attendant Nigel Ogden had a dislocated shoulder, frostbite to his arms, face, and left eye. Those were the only two injuries on Flight 5390. All 81 passengers and six crew members on board survived. Thankfully, the incident on board British Airways Flight 5390 didn't lead to a single loss of life. However, the situation was extremely dangerous, and if not for the courageous efforts of First Officer Alistair Atchison and the rest of his flight crew, we could easily be telling the story of a crash that led to the death of 87 human beings. So what exactly happened? Why did this windshield or windscreen fail? How did something like that occur? Well, to understand what took place, we have to go back two days earlier to Friday, June 8, 1990. Inside a hangar at Birmingham Airport is the BAC-111 that will be used for Flight 5390 the following Sunday morning. The plane is scheduled for maintenance for a few issues, one of which is the replacement of the captain's side forward windscreen. On a previous flight, a captain noted in an air safety report that he witnessed darkening and bubbling at the bottom left side of the windscreen. It appeared as though the windshield wasn't sealing completely and pressurized air was escaping during the flight, so maintenance decides that the windscreen needs to be replaced. The design of the windshield for the BAC-111 is problematic. It doesn't have a plug fit. If you remember from United Airlines Flight 811, that flight that had an explosive decompression due to a cargo door opening at a high altitude over the Pacific Ocean, that cargo door closed from the outside and then locked with an electronic latching mechanism. So if that locking mechanism fails, the door was going to blow open because it didn't have a frame that it was pressed up against during the times that the plane was pressurized. It was completely dependent on that latching mechanism working to keep the door sealed. One of the safety recommendations from the United 811 flight was that cargo doors should be designed to have a plug seal, meaning the cargo door should close from the inside against the frame instead of closing from the outside. This makes it so when the plane's pressurized, that internal pressure pushes against the door from the inside, against the door frame of the plane. This creates a safer seal than trying to hold an outward closing door that doesn't push up snugly to an airplane's frame. Well, this windshield on the BAC-111 is similar to that cargo door on Flight 811. The windshield is attached to the plane via 90 bolts that are screwed in around the perimeter of the windshield from the outside of the plane, This means whenever the plane is pressurized, there's a ton of force pushing against that window, and instead of the windshield being pushed by the pressure snugly up against the window frame from the inside, it's attached to the outside, and the only thing holding it in place are these 90 bolts. So it's very important that these bolts are installed correctly to keep this windshield attached to the plane and create the proper seal. The shift maintenance manager shows up to work that Friday night at 9.45 p.m. 45 minutes before his 10:30 p.m. shift starts. He's going to be working a night shift for the first time in 5 weeks, and he only got 90 minutes of sleep that night before heading in for his graveyard shift. There's also a bit of a time crunch to get this windshield replaced. At 6:30 a.m. the following morning, Saturday, June 9th, the plane was scheduled to be washed by a cleaning team that was booked the previous weekend. The same team was booked to come in and wash planes, but maintenance was behind with their repairs and couldn't quit working, so the cleaning team was told that they didn't have to wash the planes, but they still got paid anyways. The maintenance manager has this on his mind, that the company wasted money last weekend on a cleaning crew that they didn't even use, and he didn't want to repeat the same mistake this weekend. So it's important to him to get this windscreen replaced quickly, and thus the cleaning crew that they're going to pay can wash the plane this time. So at four in the morning, the maintenance manager gets up on a lift to access the windscreen, and he removes a 60 pound piece by taking out all 90 bolts. He eyes the bolts, correctly identifies them as A211 7D bolts. He doesn't consult a manual or parts catalog to confirm that these are the correct bolts to use for this windscreen. And upon removing the bolts, he notices that a number of them have corrosion or defects. So he goes to the parts room in the hangar to see if he can find new 7D bolts. In the storeroom is the supervisor. The maintenance manager mentions that he needs 7D bolts because he's replacing the pilot's forward windscreen on a BAC-111. Supervisor tells him that the A211 8D bolts are the bolts to use on that windscreen, not 7D. The 8D bolts are a little bit longer than the 7D bolts. Having just taken these 7D bolts out of the windscreen, a windscreen that was in place for at least the last four years, the maintenance manager decided not to listen to the supervisor about his suggestion of the 8D bolts. He doesn't even consult a manual to make sure that he has the right bolts. He just decides he's gonna install this new windscreen with the same size bolts he had just removed, those 7Ds. If the maintenance manager had looked up the parts on microfiche or consulted the manual, he would have learned that the supervisor was correct. The pilot's windscreen for the BAC-111 uses 8D bolts. Whoever replaced this windshield last time incorrectly used 7D bolts, which may be why this windscreen was having issues in the first place. To complicate things even further, the direct vision or side cockpit window uses 7D bolts. So maybe this maintenance manager was confused and thought all the windscreens and windows in the cockpit just use 7D bolts, when in reality, the pilot's windscreen uses 8D and the side windows use 7D. So our maintenance manager decides he's gonna use the 7D bolts. At the storeroom, he looks in the 7D bolt drawer and he only finds four bolts, not enough. There's a parts carousel in another building at Birmingham Airport. So at 5 a.m., he hops in his car drives across the airport in search of more 7D bolts. At the Spares carousel, the place is very dimly lit, and our maintenance manager forgot his reading glasses. It's difficult to read any of the labels on the drawers if they exist at all, so the maintenance manager decides he's going to use one of the 7D bolts he has on him and just do an eye comparison. He finds a drawer of bolts that look identical, in his opinion, to the 7D bolt, and he grabs 84 of them. Well, unfortunately, he grabbed 84 bolts that were not 8D bolts, the bolts he was supposed to use. He didn't even grab 84 of the seventy bolts that he was originally after that would have been incorrect anyways. Instead, he grabs 84 8C bolts that to him in this darkly lit room without his glasses at 5 a.m. on his first night shift in five weeks after only getting 90 minutes of sleep look identical to his desired 7D bolt the 8C bolt is slightly smaller in diameter than the 7D and 8D bolts. So the maintenance manager goes back to his repair hangar and installs the new pilot's windshield using six of the 7D bolts that he had removed from the plane earlier that night because these six looked in pretty good condition to him, didn't see any corrosion or defects. And for the remaining 84 bolts for that windscreen installation, he uses the 8C bolts that he picked up from across the airport. Bolts that are brand new but are slightly smaller in diameter. Out of the 90 bolts he installed, not one of them were the correct size, the 8D bolt that was designed for this pilot's windscreen. Another horrible coincidence that led to this incorrect installation was the fact that it was raining during the early morning hours of June 9th, the time that this windshield replacement was taking place. So the plane was pushed into the hangar and the hangar doors were closed. The BAC-111 barely fits inside the hangar. This made it so the maintenance manager was in an awkward position trying to replace this windshield in a cramped fashion from the side of the aircraft instead of being able to set up directly in front of the plane and comfortably complete his task. If he had been able to be head on while screwing in these bolts, he might have noticed that the 8C bolt heads were smaller than the 70 bolt heads. 70 bolt heads sunk into the windshield rim, perfectly flush with that rim, while the 8C bolts left a tiny bit of room. AC bolts weren't flush. This is just another clue he might have picked up on if everything hadn't gone perfectly wrong. At the time, replacing a windshield was not considered a repair to a vital system, so when the maintenance manager signs off on the job that was completed, a second inspection was not required. If he had done a repair to a flight control, this would have required a second set of eyes to make sure the repair was done correctly. A pressurization check was not even required. So the first time this windscreen would be tested out would be when flight 5390 takes to the air a little over 24 hours later. The next day, the maintenance manager witnessed a coworker replace another windscreen on another plane with 8D bolts. However, this didn't trigger any second thinking about the repairs he had done the previous night. This was another chance to catch his mistake that went unnoticed. Investigators came to the conclusion that there was a poor culture at the maintenance facility, That valued getting work completed in a timely manner over doing the job to the outlined and proper procedures. Often maintenance employees would skirt rules to complete tasks faster because they were frequently overwhelmed with their workload. The maintenance manager that worked on the plane that was used for flight 5390 ignored procedure, bypassed the manual, and was dismissive of his coworkers' advice. And he didn't even see these errors as unusual. This casualness was just embedded in the job at the time. In February 1992, the Air Accidents Investigation Branch released its report on Flight 5390. In the report, the causes of the incident are as follows. Number one, a safety-critical task, not identified as a vital point, was undertaken by one individual who also carried total responsibility for the quality achieved, and the installation was not tested until the aircraft was airborne on a passenger-carrying flight. Number two... The shift maintenance manager's potential to achieve quality in the windscreen fitting process was eroded by his inadequate care, poor trade practices, failure to adhere to company standards, and use of unsuitable equipment, which were judged symptomatic of a longer-term failure by him to observe the promulgated procedures. Number three, the British Airways local management, product samples, and quality audits Had not detected the existence of inadequate standards employed by the shift maintenance manager because they did not monitor directly the working practices of shift maintenance managers. So, how did the incident on British Airways Flight 5390 make flying safer? Well, thanks to Flight 5390, aviation safety officials gained a heightened sense of awareness of how improper choices made by maintenance engineers and a poor maintenance culture can result in inadequate repairs, mistakes that can lead to a plane crash. For years, aviation safety officials have been branching into new territory in regards to the mindset of pilots, introducing research in areas like human factors and the development of CRM training to encourage good habits and good communication in the cockpit. After studying Flight 5390, now safety officials branched into a new area of air safety that focused on improving job performance and mentality of aviation's maintenance engineers. The report recommended that airlines should evaluate whether it was proper to have engineers certifying their own work, whether the list of vital points that require more than one set of eyes to inspect a repair job and certify it was incomplete or not, The report encouraged periodic retraining and regular testing of maintenance engineers to make sure they're following the proper company procedures and not establishing any bad habits. The report stated the importance of using corrective glasses by engineers when needed, and the report called for British Airways to review their quality assurance policies to make sure the job performance of maintenance engineers was held to a high standard in the future. Well, Tess, let's bring Tess into the discussion. What did you think about the story of Flight 5390? Anything pique your interest?
1: Well, Michael, I found this story to be just completely unbelievable and unreal. I kept trying to picture it in my mind, and I was having trouble getting a full picture of it. Um, The thing that really struck me the most was just how heroic everyone was in the cockpit. Yeah. Everyone really rallied together to save uh, this captain, Lancaster. And mm-hmm. that just really warmed my heart. Um, and everyone sort of played a role right down to um, Ogden, the flight attendant, who grabbed the captain's legs, and Hewitt, who broke the cockpit door into yeah. pieces. I thought and- that
0: was a pretty, like... Macho badass, yeah. totally
1: badass. Yeah, I wish I could have seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then down to the you know the first officer taking the controls and landing the plane despite all odds without any of his charts um, in a totally stressful and distracted environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it was just I loved hearing this story and I was just really impressed by how everyone sort of played a role to make the plane land safely in yeah, the end
0: definitely i think you nailed it it was a it was a team effort all these people pitched in the first officer was in a really tough position of not having a co-pilot had to do all the checks by himself he had to go to an airport he wasn't planning on going to that he apparently wasn't very comfortable with and you know usually you could pull out maybe a chart that would show you how this uh, airport lays out And he just had to figure it out. It seemed like as he was coming down in the sky, it was still hazy and he couldn't even see the airport. I thought the air traffic controller too, you could say did an excellent Mm -hmm. job. I like that part where he's just repeating every, you know, half mile where the plane's at, just trying to give this guy a co-pilot and calm him down. You know, I think that's what, when we're all in a panicky mindset, we could use a reassuring voice. So I don't think we should forget about the air traffic control. Totally,
1: yeah. I was. Uh, I totally agree with that. Even the moment where Ogden um, was released from his duties of mm-hmm. holding the captain's legs, And went in to um, sit on the jump seat and that other flight attendant who reassured him and said, we've got a job to do love. I thought that was such a beautiful moment too.
0: It it makes me think of our earlier discussion about um, flight attendants and pilots. You know, they just say they're very professional. I love seeing people taking pride in their job and just doing a great job and, I think uh, they showed a lot of humility and they just were, you know, had their humanity. This guy's got a dislocated shoulder. He thinks his friend's dead and he still gets up and does his job. Like, talk about being a professional. I just think that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I totally agree.
0: One thing I thought we could talk about was I thought it was pretty astonishing that the captain survived. That was kind of a surprise.
1: Absolutely. And the fact that he didn't have a concussion or any kind of brain injury was also astonishing.
0: No, I agree. I thought we could go through a list of everything he has to endure. First off, he's just chilling in the cockpit, waiting for his morning tea, expecting a run-of-the-mill flight. And in an instant, his head slammed against the cockpit ceiling, his shirt's torn off, he's sucked outside in the one-degree cold, blasted by 40-mile-an-hour winds. So you have to imagine the wind chill was probably pretty insane. He's stuck in the slipstream, so he can't even breathe. And if, even if he could breathe, it's at 17,000 feet. Not a lot of oxygen at 17,000 feet. You really have to wonder how the 400 miles an hour winds didn't do more damage to his body.
1: He's getting frostbite. I kept picturing one of those wiggly guys at car dealerships. I hope that's not insensitive to say, but that was what I was in my mind.
0: Yeah. He, it turns out Captain Lancaster was only out of work for five months after the incident. He worked for British Airways again before moving on to EasyJet. In an interview after the incident, Captain Lancaster said he saw the window blast away from him, and this was the first bang he heard. And then a second bang occurred, and he was pulled up out of his seat and out of the plane. He said his main memory was not being able to breathe at first, because he was facing forward into this 400-mile-an-hour wind, and he couldn't get in any air. So he twisted twist his torso around so his face would face backwards and he could get some breaths. When he did turn his body backwards, he said he remembered seeing both engines on the back of the plane turning and the T-tail of the BC-111 behind him. Can you imagine, Tess?
1: Oh my gosh, I can't. And to think that a few minutes later, his co-workers were discussing whether or not to let him go. Uh, yeah. I'm so glad they didn't.
0: I feel like that was just like maybe a panicky a passing discussion. Thought. It seemed like yeah. Everybody in the cockpit immediately was out. like, we're not doing that. Yeah. So.
1: What about Atchison? What happened to him?
0: First Officer Acheson continued working as a pilot for British Airways in the 90s, and then he moved on to Airline Jet 2 before retiring. His final flight before retirement was June 28, 2015, flying a Boeing 737 from Alicante to Manchester. Acheson was awarded the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air and a 1992 Polaris Award, which is the highest decoration associated with civil aviation, awarded by the International Federation of Airline Pilots Association. There isn't a whole lot of biographical info about Atchison out there. He clearly steered clear of the spotlight, showed great humility and professionalism. After an incident like this, he totally could have milked his moment with fame for all it was worth, but instead he just got back to work he was a consummate professional.
1: He's so awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan.
0: Flight attendant Nigel Ogden wrote a newspaper article chronicling his ordeal on Flight 5390. At first, when the explosive decompression occurred, Ogden thought a bomb had gone off on the plane. He said after the flight, he went into the cockpit and saw Captain Lancaster on a stretcher covered in blood and being tended to by paramedics. Ogden said he heard the captain say, I want to eat. And Ogden screamed, typical bloody pilots. Then Ogden went out on the front steps and shouted, he's alive. And then he buried his head in his hands and cried his eyes out.
1: Oh, that makes me so happy.
0: (laughs) What do you think he meant by typical bloody pilots? Are pilots always hungry?
1: I guess maybe that must be, if, if there are any flight attendants out there, or pilots, maybe you can uh, educate us on whether this is part <laughs> of the folklore. We're
0: like, we're hungry? Or he was just being like, oh, I just dealt with this huge thing, and I'm just going to make light of it right away. Ogden had a dislocated shoulder, frostbite to his face, and left eye. He went back to work after a short break, but he retired in 2001 due to post-traumatic stress. He said that not a day goes by that he doesn't think about the incident on flight 5390.
1: Yeah, frostbite in the eye doesn't sound great. I wonder how he recovered from that.
0: I hope he has recovered fully. All four flight attendants received the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air and the British Airways Award for Excellence.
1: Well, that story honestly put me in a really good mood. Thank you.
0: I thought it was a story we could all use right now. I like a story where everybody was really scared, everybody thought they were going to die, and then everything turned out okay, and everybody survived and had a happy life. Uh, Captain Tim Lancaster said, The great thing about the aviation industry is it always learns from its mistakes and puts them right. Although it was an incident we didn't want, mistakes were made, lessons were learned, procedures were changed, and investigation and modification of the systems took place, and it won't happen again. During the research for this episode, I became aware of an argument taking place online about the language used to describe what exactly is happening during an explosive decompression. It's a semantic argument whether well, it's more accurate to say that items are blown out of the aircraft rather than sucked out. Apparently, when an explosive decompression happens, the pressurized air inside the plane pushes against the air on the outside of the plane and the air flows outward. So, items that leave the plane, you could say were blown out rather than sucked out. What do you think, Tess? Are you on Team Blow or Team Suck?
1: Is this a trick question, Michael? I feel like no. there's no right answer.
0: <laughs> I feel like you can go with either. I personally, I'm on Team Suck. Why? I just think saying something sucked out of the plane is a more uh, clear image. And uh, First Officer Atchison even said the pilot's been sucked out of the plane. So anybody out there that thinks you should say blown, I guess you're telling us that the First Officer is wrong too. Uh,
1: Yeah, talk to us after class if that's what you think.
0: (laughs) The last BAC-111 in service was retired on May 6th, 2019 after a flight to Baltimore-Washington International Airport. So this plane is no longer flying the friendly skies. Tess, one other thing I thought uh, to ask you is, would you say that maintenance engineer deserved most of the blame that he got, or was he a product of the culture that he was in, that he was overwhelmed with work and was told by his bosses, you better get this work done, and it just became kind of a known thing that you didn't have to consult the manual every time, you just needed to rush and get your job done?
1: Well, Michael, there's no question that he made a mistake, but at least, you know, we're now aware of that vulnerability in the maintenance world and we can train maintenance workers to do better in the future.
0: Yeah, definitely. I also thought like the design of the windscreen yet again was something we had to think about that it could have been much better if we could just install that windscreen from the inside to be a plug-in windscreen. So he was a product of the culture, you know, he was told, get all this work done quickly and... You know, he did have an opportunity. I thought the biggest opportunity was when the supervisor was like, hey, those use eight D's. And he's like, I'm just going to use seven D's. Right. But now we know it was a good it was a good lesson that we learned.
1: Yeah. I'm sure if he knew what the result would be, he wouldn't have. Yeah.
0: He didn't do it maliciously. He just was in a rush. He was tired. He didn't have his glasses and he made a mistake and mistakes happen. But from this mistake, it's going to prevent future mistakes. Right. Well, I think that's going to do it for British Airways Flight Five Three Nine Zero. Tess, do you have any favorite aviation-themed movies?
1: Well, I just watched *Fearless*.
0: That's a great movie. That's it's actually I'm so honest. good. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. You've seen that one, right?
0: I have. Yeah, I put together a little list for our listeners if they're at home and missing flying through the sky oh. during these past couple weeks at home. Now you can watch some movies about aviation and live vicariously. All right, let's hear them. First one's Airplane, the timeless comedy classic released in 1980. Has to be the best airplane themed movie out there. It'll make you smile. I
1: shockingly haven't seen that. Well, you need to see that. First on my list, too.
0: I also have uh, Air Force One with Harrison Ford as president. Okay. Harrison Ford's my favorite celebrity. I like when he punches the bad guy and tells him, get off my plane.
1: Yeah, you have a bit of a crush on Harrison Ford, don't you?
0: I do uh fearless with jeff bridges the one you just mentioned mm-hmm. that's a great one that was inspired by united airlines flight 232 that we covered
1: yeah i'll never look at strawberries the same way after that movie
0: <laughs> next we have a top gun that was a favorite of mine when i was a kid okay catch me if you can
1: oh that's a great
0: one who hasn't fantasized about being leonardo dicaprio in that film he Every seems so single suave day. yeah last Goals. lastly i'm going with castaway I like that scene at the end when Tom Hanks is back on an airplane and he's been rescued and he has his little glass of ice. That's Whenever a Whenever I see one. that little glass of ice, it really makes me like wish I was having a cold cocktail in the mm, sky.
1: Delicious. It's you... kind of
0: like the best part of being on a plane is when you get drink service.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: Everybody's looking forward to that. Where you're like safely at cruising altitude and then you get a nice iced drink. Who doesn't like that?
1: Right. Uh, I did notice you... Excluded Snakes on a Plane from your list? That
0: should be on the list. I didn't have it on the list. Watch Snakes on a Plane. That'll make you laugh. Airline routes have been greatly reduced during this time of quarantine. American Airlines announced nonstop flights between New York and Los Angeles will resume on April 16th. Only six flights will be scheduled per week. American also will fly from New York to Chicago, New York to Boston, New York to Dallas. There's one daily flight American flies from Los Angeles to Honolulu right now. Southwest Airlines released a new schedule from June 6th to the 27th. Southwest will be operating 50% of its flights during this period, still 2,000 flights a day. Southwest will also resume flying to Honolulu, but if you do fly to Hawaii at this time, all visitors are required to quarantine for 14 days. United Airlines is still operating a number of international flights if you're looking to leave the country. United operates flights from Newark to Frankfurt, Newark to London, Newark to Tel Aviv, San Francisco to Tokyo, San Francisco to Sydney, and a number of flights from Houston to Mexican cities. JetBlue is only operating out of Boston, LAX, Long Beach, JFK, Newark, San Francisco, and DC. So routes have been greatly reduced, but if you have an emergency and need to fly domestically or get out of the country, you still can. Tess, any chance you'll be disregarding common sense and going on a vacation in May or June?
1: Do you know what, Michael? It really depends on how much you annoy me. Um, Mm. I may have to leave the country if it gets bad, but otherwise (laughs) I'll probably just hunker down.
0: That time you had to leave during a pandemic (laughs) because I was so annoying.
1: I'm just kidding.
0: Well, I'm glad you're probably not going to go anywhere. I'm glad that you have a tight hold on your marbles right now. I'll be honest, wacky stories in airline news have dried up as of late, so I was looking into some stories from the past, and I discovered in August 2018, on an Aeroflot flight from Moscow to Tel Aviv, a young man became enraged after misplacing his cell phone. He confronted flight attendants, accusing them of stealing his device. One moment, he screams at them and says, where did you put it? I will F you up. Then the young man proceeds to take several swings at a flight attendant before being restrained by a fellow passenger, and the young men then attempted to headbutt flight attendants, but was fortunately unsuccessful. Turns out the man had been drinking heavily the entire time, and the phone apparently was in his possession the entire time. The oh man was God,
1: that's embarrassing."
0: <laughs> the man was turned over to Israeli police promptly upon touchdown in Tel Aviv. Tess, have you ever been in a similar position where you've lost an item mid-flight and become convinced that a flight attendant had stolen it from you?
1: It happens every time I fly, Michael. (laughs) Do
0: you threaten them with violence? The
1: item's always different, but um, yeah, it always happens. Uh, And the headbutt is also my preferred method of violence.
0: Well, I won't be messing with you. Lastly, in April 2020, a 64-year-old Frenchman was surprised by coworkers with an unplanned trip on a military jet. Apparently, the 64-year-old showed up at the airbase for what he thought was going to be a company party and was completely unaware of what his fellow workers had planned for him. Upon learning that he was about to fly through the air in a military jet that reaches speeds above 800 miles an hour, he became very stressed and experienced an elevated heart rate. Despite his nervousness, the man went through with the joyride. When the plane reached 2,500 feet and the pilot started to climb, the man panicked and reached out for something to grab onto. Well, it turns out, in his panic, that he grabbed onto the ejector seat button. The man was flung into the air and parachuted down thousands of feet to Earth, landing eventually alongside the German border. Tess, if you're planning anything similar for me, can I just state now, not interested. Not interested at all.
1: You're going to eject yourself as well?
0: Yeah. It sounds like a nightmare gift, right? Like, surprise, you get to do this really stressful thing. Like, it sounds, <laughs> I can't believe somebody planned this.
1: I like that that's what you're fixating on and not the fact that he ejected out of <laughs> the fighter plane. He's fine. <laughs> I'm just saying, in
0: the future, buy me a nice blender, a watch, or something. Skip the whole fearing for my life aspect of the gift, and just give me something functional.
1: Okay. One question is, how did he deploy the um, parachute? Is that is it just automatic? I don't know. It must have been. wasn't
0: in the story. Maybe that, or he just like found something. And they said, if there's any issue, pull this. And he, pull, <laughs> he hit something, and it was just. Phew.
1: I'm so glad he what was okay. What a hell of a
0: day, man! You, like he had to go home and talk to his wife and be like. <laughs> Met up for a company party, I apparently (laughs) had to get on an 800 mile an hour jet, and then I got scared and accidentally hit the ejector button, and then I had to plunge 2,500 feet down to earth in a parachute. Yeah, right. What's for dinner?
1: He was already stressed out (laughs) in the plane, and he probably ended up even in a worse state up in the air.
0: He overcame, though. He did that. He probably will always have that memory and story. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of PC PC. Thank you to Tess Andrade for uh, helping us out today, being a guest and being producer of the podcast. Anything you want to say to the people before we go?
1: Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon and tuning in on Twitter to talk to us when we're lonely. And thank you, Michael, for all the work you do.
0: Thank you for all the work you do. Uh, thanks to our Patreon members. It's been really cool to have people become Patreon members and help support the uh, podcast. If you go to patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod, you can become a member as well. Check out uh, our website at plane crash We love reviews. We haven't talked about reviews at all in the past couple episodes, but we still love them. So send them in if you can and go to our Twitter too at plane crash pod. I hope you're all staying strong out there, using this time to uh, better yourself, exercising, reading books, taking care of your loved ones, trying to stay calm and in a good mindset. We're going to be okay. We're going to, you know, go through a painful time. This is an unusual world we're living in, but we're all doing it together, and I'm going to keep on working hard at what I can. I hope you're working hard at what you can Take care of your friends and family and neighbors. And we'll get you a new episode pretty soon. Thanks again, guys. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Love you guys.